don't know about you, but I love surprises. I love shocking turn of events in movies or novels. I love it when my beloved sports teams, uh, it seems like once a decade, surprisingly beat a team they weren't supposed to beat. When I was a kid, uh, I used to watch my sports teams and I had a VCR. Now, children, uh, if you don't know what that is, just talk to your, uh, your parents. They'll explain what a VCR is. But I would record important sports games. And if they lost, I would just use the tape again the next week, right? But if they, if by some miracle, they came back. If they had some amazing, surprising victory, I would keep that tape. I would label it and I would watch it. But I noticed as I watched, as I watched that victory, what would happen is over time, the initial surprise, the initial feeling of wonder that you would have as a sports fan or, or a movie, a, a turn of events in a movie, the initial wonder wears off, doesn't it? I mean, if you, you know what's going to happen, right? You kind of know the story and it just kind of loses its wonder. Now, if you're a literature buff, uh, J.R. Tolkien had a word for this, uh, a, a stunning turn of events in a story. Uh, the, the, the part of the story where it looks like it's defeat and all of a sudden victory is snatched out of the jaws of defeat. The word he coined for it is called eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe. This is when something good, it actually lands on you like a catastrophe. It's so intense it's such a turn of events. It's so shocking. It's so wondrous, but it's good. Now, what does that have to do with Luke chapter seven this morning? This is what it has to do with Luke chapter seven. We serve a God who does wondrous works. We worship a savior who is wondrous. And in Luke chapter seven this morning, we find several wonders, several surprises that have become, I believe, far too uh, casual to us, far too familiar to us. And it's not just in Luke chapter 7. When we read the Bible, there are surprises on every page. But what happens is familiarity breeds what? Okay, that's one person. It, it breeds contempt. We're familiar far too familiar with what ought to provoke in our hearts awestruck wonder. G.K. Chesterton once said that the world will never starve from want of wonders, but from want of wonder. And I believe that's the case. And so this morning, as I've wrestled with this passage this week, the thing that has stood out to me the most are the surprises, the shocks, the turns of events found in a passage that you might on initial reading find familiar. And so as we go through this passage, my prayer is that as we, as we see Jesus evaluate John, as we see Jesus evaluate this generation, that God in his mercy would work in our hearts to provoke and restore to us the joy and the wonder of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whose name is wonderful. So open your Bibles. If you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter seven. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 24. If you're not used to reading a Bible, you can find a Bible in the pew in front of you. 
Um, and if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible with you. It, let that be our gift to you. Um, you can find this passage on page 864. If you're not used to listening to sermons, uh, we're going to read the passage slowly, work through it verse by verse. And the, when I say verse, I'm talking about the little sentence numbers. And the big number is the chapter number. And that's chapter 7, little sentence number 24. Okay? Uh, just to set this passage in context, remember what happened last week. Jesus is evaluating, as it were, the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, you'll remember, he had a public ministry in the wilderness of Judea. And then he prepared the way for Messiah. And then shortly thereafter, after baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River, John the Baptist was preaching and proclaiming against the wickedness of Herod. And Herod threw him in prison. And so he began to hear about what Jesus was doing, as we saw last week. And he had some doubts because as he looked at the ministry of Jesus, he didn't see the judgment that he thought the scriptures required. The judgment that God, God's Messiah would bring when he came. The day of vengeance. And so he had some doubts. And so Jesus sends these messengers from John the Baptist back to John to reassure John of his identity as the Messiah. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. What is Jesus going to say about John? So let's start this morning. First question that's a shock and a surprise that Jesus answers is this question. Number one, who is God's greatest spokesman? Who's God's greatest spokesman? Look at verses 24 to 28. In these verses, Jesus tells us something surprising. Something shocking about John the Baptist. Even though, even though John had some doubts, Jesus doesn't criticize John. He doesn't rebuke John. He commends John and he reaffirms John. First, verse 24, notice Jesus says that John's a prophet. Look what he says. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? What then did you, did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. So Jesus begins by establishing and reminding those who he's speaking to not to be confused. John is a prophet, he's a prophet. Jesus calls John a prophet and he says to the people, listen, you didn't go out to the Jordan River when John was preaching because you wanted to hear a weak man. You didn't go out to the Jordan River to hear a, a, a reed that, sh that shakes and vacillates in the wind. You didn't go out to hear a weak man. You, heard, you went out to hear a prophet, someone who preached the truth. You went out to hear someone who wasn't soft. He wasn't dressed in, in fancy clothes. He, he, he wasn't a soft man. He didn't live in the lap of luxury. John was in the wilderness, and that's where prophets often come from, the wilderness. And notice he says he, he wasn't dressed in fancy clothes. What, what was John's attire? He, he, he didn't shop at Banana Republic, Right. Nothing wrong with that. If you, if you shop at Banana Republic, you can leave. No, no, it's not kidding. John was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt 
around his, his way. He ate locusts and wild honey. Why? Because he's carrying the prophet, the mantle of Elijah. He dressed like a prophet. He looked like a prophet. He had a Nazarite vow like a prophet. He preached like a prophet. He called the whole nation to repent and to turn from their sins. Second, Jesus says he's not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. Look at verse 26. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. You see that? So Jesus doesn't just say, well, he's just like any garden variety prophet. John's ministry was something that was that exceeded the normal role of a prophet. Now, listen, um, we don't have royalty in this country. But a friend of mine used to work for Air Force One. And one of his roles in that job, he would organize and prepare when the president was going to be taking a trip. He would work on Air Force One, all the logistics of getting things ready ahead of the arrival of Air Force One. Uh, Someone once told me that um, wherever the Queen of England goes, it always smells like fresh paint, right? Um, That's probably the truth. Like before royalty arrives, before someone really important arrives, announcements are made and preparations are made. Well, it was the same way in the ancient world. If kings were going to show up in your city, they would send messengers to go before them. They would send people to go ahead of them to announce and prepare for the arrival of royalty. Well, brothers and sisters, in the same way, the Old Testament prophets prepared and announced the arrival, the coming of Messiah, the coming of the king of Israel. And Jesus, in this passage, says that John wasn't just your garden variety prophet. He, in fact, was the final prophet, the one prophesied in Scripture who had the privilege of being the prophet who actually introduced the whole world to Messiah himself. Look at verse 27. You say, well, what does it mean he was more than a prophet? Well, Jesus answered it. This is he of whom it is written, behold, he's quoting Malachi 3.1, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. You see, John isn't just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. He is the prophet. He is the messenger. He's the one who stands at the climax of Old Testament prophecy and New Testament fulfillment. He's the bridge between these two eras. Third, Jesus says, John is God's greatest prophet of all. Now, we still haven't gotten to the surprise yet. You may be thinking, I know all this, Pastor. Well, just wait. The surprise is coming. Verse 28. This is astounding. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. You see that? So, again, let me read it again. Those born of women, how many are greater than John? All right. I know some of you have masks on. How many are greater than John? None. That's better. This is a Baptist church. You can talk. None. Now, now, Jesus isn't making a statement about the inherent worth and dignity of every other person's ever lived. In the context, Jesus is talking about prophets. 
And so I understand what Jesus is saying here to be saying that in all the prophets, every, every prophet who's been born, there isn't a prophet who is greater than John the Baptist. And again, why was John so special? Because John was the one in the final line of the prophets to say, here he is. Now, just think about that for a minute. Jesus is saying in verse 28, in the context of prophets, John the Baptist, the one who's locked up in prison, who only had maybe a year and a half of ministry, the guy who's on death row, the guy who's going to be beheaded, the guy who just a few verses ago was doubting, he's greater than Moses. He's greater than Samuel. He's greater than Elijah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. He's greater than all of them. And you say, why? Because he got to introduce me. That's what Jesus is saying. Later on in Matthew 13, Jesus says this. Matthew 13, 16, write in your Bible. If you're using a pew Bible, you can write in that one too. Blessed are your eyes for you see and your ears for you hear. For I tell you, here's why you're blessed. Many prophets longed to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Fourth, here's the surprise. Jesus says that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. That's the surprise. Look what it says in verse, end of verse 28. I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Just think about that. The one who fulfilled this ancient prophecy, the greatest prophet who's ever lived, the one who is least in the kingdom. That is, think of it in terms of a timeline. Those who, after the death and resurrection of Christ, after the outpouring of the Spirit of God, those who, the the, the most illiterate, ignorant child of Jesus Christ who believes in Christ, who enters the kingdom, that, 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 that one, the least, is greater than all who came before. John was the greatest man who lived before the advent of Messiah, but John stands at the end of that era. And so the arrival of Messiah is so great, even the lowest member of the kingdom is greater than the greatest one from the previous era. Now, brothers and sisters, This morning, you should absolutely marvel at the privileged position that you find yourself in. You stand in this side of the cross, this side, looking back at the resurrection, at the empty tomb. You're in a privileged position to understand with full clarity. The fact that you have a Bible in your hands is a miracle. Listen to what uh, Peter says about the prophets. And then think about your your position this morning. 
Concerning this, this is 1 Peter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed, this is verse 12, to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. You have something in the gospel that angels are on tiptoe to look into. The least in the kingdom is greater than all of those who came before. That's the first surprise. That's the first shock. That's the first thing in this passage that ought to cause us to wonder. Second question that Jesus answers in this passage that ought to cause us to wonder. Number two. Who is leading a purpose-driven life? Who is leading a purpose-driven life? Verses 29 and 30. Now, many years ago, there was a pastor in uh, Southern California who wrote a book called The Purpose-Driven Life. It was, it was mildly successful. Um, it sold 50 million copies and it was translated into 85 languages, okay? Okay. Um, the point isn't that book. I just want you to say that, that in first century Israel, if you ask the average Jewish person on the street in Jerusalem, hey, who's living a purpose-driven life for God? Who's really living for God? The answer would have been easy. The answer would have been, oh, the Pharisees and the scribes. Th- that's like the varsity in, 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 that's like the varsity team. Everybody else, we're, we're, on, we're, we're maybe, you know, like trying out or we're on the JV team. The Pharisees and the scribes, they're the experts. They take it really seriously. The word Pharisee, uh, it's a Hebrew word that just means separated one. The Pharisees, they didn't just follow God's word, according to their view. They separated themselves from people they thought didn't follow God's word. They thought of sin as being contagious So the way you avoid sin is by avoiding sinners. And so they were the they were the varsity. They were the they were living the purpose driven life. They avoided any contact with sinners. They didn't eat with them. They 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 didn't go under the same roof as them. They avoided sinners and they loathed Jesus, as we saw earlier in our scripture reading from Luke five, because he didn't just hang out with sinners He actually ate with them. Now, can you imagine eating with sinners? Come to the potluck afterwards downstairs. (laughs) You see that the the Pharisees, they believe they're living the purpose driven life. They were on God's side. And so when John the Baptist shows up and he starts calling the whole nation to repent of their sins, they thought, oh, it's all those other people he's talking to. He's not talking to us. Now, John made it clear he called him a brood of vipers, which isn't a, a, you know, hey, you're doing a great job. Brood of vipers is pretty harsh, but they they didn't hear it. They thought John, 
he's crazy. He's not talking to us. We're the children of Abraham, after all. We're living the purpose-driven life. Why would we need a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? We're the experts. So what did they do? They rejected John, and they rejected John's message. And that's when we arrive at this amazing surprise. Look at verse 29. When all the people heard this, that is, the this, the antecedent of this is what Jesus just said about John. He's the prophet. He's the one who prepared the way for Messiah. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. They, they declared God righteous. They said God's in the right. Having been baptized with the baptism of John. Verse 30, here's the, here's the surprise. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, that is the scribes, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Here's the shock. The, the experts, the varsity, The Pharisees and the scribes rejected the purpose of God. And who actually embraced the purpose of God? Not the religious experts. The tax collectors. The scum. The the ones who were the traitors in Israel. The ones who were working with the Romans. They they were living the purpose-driven life. Not the Pharisees and scribes. How did that happen? Well, Jesus explains. Matthew 21, 31, he says this. Listen, this is how that happened. Ready? Jesus says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, Jesus says, you didn't change your minds and believe him. Do you see what Jesus is saying? John is who God says he is. He's the prophet who came. And if you reject John's message, and he was preparing the way for Messiah, for Christ, to reject John's message is to reject Jesus's message. If you don't believe John's message, you won't believe Jesus's message. And so this is a good question for us this morning. Have you embraced God's purpose for your life? And in the context of this passage, it's not the purpose of your life is to make yourself healthy, wealthy and happy. Specifically, the purpose of God in context means do you understand yourself to be a sinner or not? Do you you understand yourself to be fine? As long as God grays on a curve, I'm good. As long as God grades on a curve, do, do you look down on others with contempt? And say to yourself, well, I'm, I'm not perfect, but like, at least I'm not like that person. Or do you understand that your best efforts to please God in your own strength, 
even on a good day, are like filthy rags. Do you own yourself to be a sinner in the sight of a holy God, your maker? Because that's what John the Baptist was saying. He was saying that the whole nation had to acknowledge that it's nothing about your ethnicity or your family heritage. None of that matters. The question is, do you acknowledge yourself before God as someone who's in desperate need of grace and mercy? Jesus is going to say this over and over again. Remember the parable that he gives in Luke 18? I've said this about 10 times in this sermon series, and I'll say it again. There are two people of that parable. They're praying. One of them is a tax collector, and one of them is a Pharisee. And the Pharisee is praying about how great he is. All these things he's done, all the tithes he's given, all the ways that he's served God. And he says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, including that wretched tax collector over there. But the tax collector, remember, standing a long way off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he had a really short prayer. Remember what it was? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says that one and not the other left the temple justified. You see, friend, the good news of God's grace in Christ will not sound like good news to you if you don't understand your need for mercy. If you think God's going to grade you on a curve, you're believing a lie. Do you know what you need to stand right in the sight of God? You need perfection. You need a perfect righteousness that you can't get by your works. And so embracing the purpose of God means not only embracing your own sinfulness, but it means embracing God's son, the one who came and lived that perfect life that we deserve, that we, we, we need to live but haven't. And he went to the cross and died in our place for our sins. He rose again for our justification. And that's, that's, the, that's the entire message of the Bible, that God would send his son into the world to be the savior of sinners, to be received by faith alone. And so, friend, if, if none of this makes sense to you, if you have questions about this, I'll be standing at that back door afterwards. So before you go, to the, before you go to, the, to, the, to the potluck, talk to someone around you or talk to me at the back door. I'd love to share with you about what it means to trust Christ. Kids, listen up. Listen up. If you have questions about this, talk to your mom or your dad. But what the, this passage is clear, clearly teaching is that embracing the purpose of God means declaring, listen, God is right and I am wrong. That's the fundamental uh, posture is that what God says about you is right and that we're wrong. And the only way that we can become right is by trusting in the God who is righteousness himself. That's the second surprise. Third surprise and then we're done. One last question, some, a surprising answer that Jesus gives. And here's the question. In verses 31 to 35, 
Who is wise in this age? Who is wise in this age? Now, verses 31 to 35, when you think about the voices of wisdom in this age, who do you think of? Um, Every generation would answer that differently. Uh, Last year, I read a book about Thomas Edison, uh, and it was a fascinating book. He hated sleep. He thought sleep was a defect. And so he would would get on to his employees by sleeping. He thought you should just try to stay up all night and keep inventing stuff. But he was considered by many a a, a luminary in his lifetime. Now, who do you think of as as someone who's wise in this age, right? You may think of uh, inventors. You may think of innovators. You may think of industry leaders, successful CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, maybe. Maybe you think of those who are technologically brilliant or financially successful, uh, those who are universally, universally praised. Um, one of the richest men in the world, a guy named Elon Musk, you may have heard of him. Uh, he's the co-founder and CEO of Tesla Corp. Um, he tweeted this pearl of wisdom back in 2019. Okay? Quote, write this down. We are literally a brain in a vat. The vat is your skull. Everything you think is real is actually an electrical signal, but it feels so real though, end quote. So there you go. You're, you're just a brain in a vat, right? Let's close in prayer. That, that, that's what passes as wisdom from one who's considered a luminary of this age. Well, brothers and sisters, in verses 39 to 35, Jesus gives another surprise. Jesus turns from evaluating himself, which is what he did earlier in the chapter, and then he evaluates John, and now he's going to evaluate this entire generation. Jesus gives a surprising or surprising summary, an analysis of this entire age in which we live. And this should shock us. Because what Jesus says in 31 to 35 is that this generation is a bunch of foolish brats. Look at verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Let me just explain what it, this may not, this may not, this may be opaque to you. So let me just explain this a little bit. Jesus is looking at the generation, the, the people of the generation of this age, and he's comparing them to immature children, to brats. Now notice in verse 32, they're playing a game. You see this? It's kind of like a sing-song game that some kids might play. And you got two different types of the game. There's, there's kind of the wedding game and there's the funeral game. And so when they're, when they're playing the flute and a happy tune, they don't want to dance. They say no dancing. And when they kind of pretend like they're doing a funeral, they're doing the dirge, they don't weep. And so what Jesus is saying, he's saying that this generation can't be pleased. They're like ignorant children who just, doesn't matter what you do, they will not be pleased. Jesus is saying 
The people of this age, they're not wise. They're foolish, immature little children. They're brats. They play their petty little games. And when they play the marriage game, they're fluting, but they don't dance. When they play the funeral game, they're wailing and dirging, but they don't weep. So in other words, it's this generation is, is tails I win, heads you lose. That, that's the way they play. Now, who is he talking about in this? Is he just talking about the people alive when this, when this parable was given? Is this generation, is that just talking about the people in the first century? And maybe we can just be like, he's not talking about us anymore. No. The people of this generation in verse 31 does not refer to simply a, a small group of people in Jerusalem in the first century. Now, where do I get this? I get this from lots of places. I'm going to summarize it briefly. If you keep reading in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 16, you can write this down. Verse 8, Jesus compares, he uses the same phrase. He says, he contrasts the, the sons, the children of this age, the children, the sons of this generation. He contrasts that group with the group that he calls the sons or the children of light. Okay? The people of this generation is a way of Jesus referring to unbelievers in all generations. Now, I, can, I never can remember what generation I was born in. Like, we, we talked about this yesterday, Allison. I, I, I don't know if I'm generation X or generation Y. I don't know. Some of you are boomers. Some of you are, you know, millennials. I don't know. I never can get that right. Um, but here's, here's a label that Jesus gives for all of the generation of this age. The, this present evil age that we live in, that was, as it were, that Jesus, with the coming of Christ, we live in the last days. So Jesus is making a statement about the present evil age that we live in. And this is what Jesus says. If you don't know what your, your, your generational label is. Well, Jesus is going to give you one. In Luke 9.41, he says this generation is a faithless and twisted generation. In Luke 11.29, he's going to say this generation is an evil, a wicked generation. Jesus says in chapter 17, verse 25, he will suffer and be rejected by this generation. Jesus is drawing upon Old Testament language. Remember the, the generation of people who came out of Egypt and the Exodus, they wandered with Jesus for 40 years. That language of a wicked and evil generation, that's the same language Jesus is using here, and he's applying it to this age. So this generation, according to Jesus, in, in Luke chapter 11, listen to this. This generation is the generation that kills the prophets and the apostles that God sends. In fact, Jesus says this. This is the most astounding one. Write this one down. Chapter 11, verses 50 and 51. The blood, listen, the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. You think, Jesus, that's kind of harsh. You're saying this whole generation is responsible, is accountable for the blood of the martyrs? That, that's, what evidence does Jesus give for this? Look at verse 33. 
He gives you the reason. See that little word for? He says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. In other words, the first piece of evidence Jesus offers for the wickedness of this generation is John the Baptist came, the one that God said is the prophet who's preparing the way for Messiah. And this is how you all responded. You said he was demon possessed. He's crazy. He was out in the wilderness living an ascetic life. And you said, yeah, that guy's crazy. He's got a demon. But it gets worse. What's the second piece of evidence that Jesus gives? Verse 34, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So think about what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, here's his evidence that this generation, the generation in which we live, is a wicked generation, a faithless generation. He gives two pieces of evidence. For the most part, this generation has rejected John the Baptist's message and you've rejected the Messiah. You've looked at John and said, he's demon-possessed, he's crazy. And you've looked at the way Jesus lived and you say, ah, he's a, a glutton and a drunkard. John was out in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey. He was separated from the people. Jesus, on the other hand, wasn't. He, he's always going to meals. He's fellowshipping with sinners. He's taking the, the good news of the kingdom from house to house. And yet they say he's a drunkard. He's a glutton. And so what this generation looks at John and they say he's too, he's too unsociable with the, the right people and Jesus is too sociable with the wrong people. So we're going to reject them both. And this comes out in lots of ways. They don't believe John's words or they don't believe Jesus is, is who he says he is. And so what's going to happen on the last day? Well, Jesus tells us in Luke 31, on the last day, the men of this generation will be condemned by the queen of the south because she came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And on the end of the day, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, brothers and sisters, I hope you find this shocking, right? Jesus is not trying to win friends and influence people, right? This, you don't offend your hearers, but that's what Jesus is doing. So we, we need to hear these words as offensive because they're intended to be offensive. It's shocking. Jesus looks out and takes this survey of all humanity from his day until the present day. And he says, you have not honored God as God. He says you haven't given thanks to him. He says you have become futile in your thinking. Your foolish hearts have become hardened. And you claim to be wise, but you actually are all fools. Because you've exchanged the glory of God for a lie. 
That's not even the greatest surprise. The last great surprise is the last verse of the passage. Look at verse 35. Here's the surprise. Yet wisdom is justified. Wisdom is vindicated. Wisdom is shown to be right by all her children. This is astounding. Jesus is saying that this childish generation that rejects both John and Jesus, by doing that, they're rejecting the wisdom of God. But those who receive John's message, those who receive Jesus Christ in the empty hands of faith are the children of wisdom. And so Jesus is saying, who's wise in this age? Who's wise in this age? The answer is shocking. It's followers of Christ. Not because of anything in us. Listen, Jesus has died. He, he, he died for our sins. He gave, up, he gave himself for us to deliver us from this present evil age. Galatians 1.4. It's not because of anything in us, but the children of this age. Jesus says are foolish because they've rejected the message that God sends to them in the gospel. But for those who trust in Christ, for those who turn and believe upon him. Jesus says wisdom, the wisdom of God is vindicated. Well, that was three points. I actually have one final point. Surprise. And then we're done. The most surprising, shocking thing in this entire passage is actually the answer to this question. Who befriends sinners? Who befriends sinners? You see, this whole chapter, this entire chapter is written by Luke to help you have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. That's why he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And probably if you understand Luke chapter 7, it's a thumbnail. It's a, it's a summary of the entire message of Luke's gospel. If you get Luke chapter 7, you'll understand the whole gospel. And what have we seen in Luke chapter 7? Surprise after surprise after surprise. Who does Jesus begin the chapter with healing? He heals the servant of a Roman centurion. And then he travels all day long to meet and stop a funeral outside of a little village called Nain where he takes a dead only son and gives him life again and hands him alive into the shocked arms of his mother who was a widow. And then Jesus doesn't rebuke the Baptist, but he he affirms John and he sends back an encouraging report. And then in the very next passage, we're going to look at this next week. What happens at the end of Luke chapter seven? You've got another situation where a Pharisee invites Jesus over for dinner. And there's also another guest at the party. Remember who it was? A sinful woman. Who begins weeping and washes Jesus feet with her tears and wipes his feet with her hair. And the Pharisee is like, he can't be a prophet. 
because he's letting a sinner touch him. But you see, Jesus came into the world to seek and to save the lost. That Pharisee, like many in this age, failed to see that Jesus is more than a prophet. He's actually the son of God incarnate, died for our sins, rose again for our justification. His arms were outstretched on the cross Their arms wide open to receive sinners, even this morning. And Christian, you think, where's the application for me? This message has one application for you, Christian. This ought to cause your heart to wonder. You ought to be amazed that it's not just Jesus came over to save other people, But you should be daily amazed that he has lavished his love on you. We sing sometimes that old hymn that has this line. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. Jesus is the friend of sinners, brothers and sisters. That's the greatest surprise of all. When he sees us in our sins, he doesn't cross the street to the other side. He's an unfailing friend who never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a faithful friend who loves and keeps on loving to the end. He's a friend who promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's a friend who says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And in the age to come, we will sit down and we will feast with all the prophets, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We will celebrate the wonders of his love forever. And we will glory in the answer to this question, who befriends sinners? The Lord Jesus Christ does. And his name is wonderful. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and Father, we pray this morning that you would restore to us the wonder and the joy of grace. Help us to receive your indictment of our problem the root problem of all, namely our fundamental rebellion against you. And Father, we pray that you would amaze us that in Christ, our King has come to die and to rescue rebels like us. That you've adopted us by your spirit into your family as children of God. Help us to marvel at grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.